welcome to the Vocal Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Lee Martin Thomas. Join me and my guest speakers as they discuss the journey they've had with their own voice, as well as light bulb moments, stories, and personal wisdoms. Vocal Freedom is a bi-weekly podcast raising awareness about vocal health and well-being from members of the voice community. I'll be speaking with professional singers, actors, choir directors, voice teachers, voice disorder experts, singing voice specialists, touring singers, and other experts. My guest this week is singer-songwriter and vocal teacher Carrie Birmingham. Carrie moved to Liverpool in 2005 after growing up in Preston. Carrie has a really interesting relationship with her voice. She's going to talk to us about the journey she's had with her voice and how different that's been as someone with hearing impairment. Carrie is the director and advanced vocal teacher of her own company, Provox in Liverpool, which provides training for all age groups. She's also pop vocals lecturer at Leeds College of Music, associate tutor in vocal technique at Edge Hill University on the musical theatre course there, and the Northern Rep for AOTOS, the Association of Teachers of Singing. So welcome, Carrie. How are you today? Hello. Yes, I'm doing good. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I know we find ourselves in the middle of a pandemic, um, mm-hmm. but we're going to try not to talk about that too much today. Obviously, we're both we're both fighting fit. Um, we are coming to each other from our homes today. Um, mm-hmm. And but, the, you know, the Vocal Freedom podcast is here to um, talk about vocal health, well-being and how you've you've had your journey with your voice. So here comes my first question. How would mm-hmm. you describe your journey with your own voice well um I guess yeah mine's a little bit of an interesting one um I probably uh, well I'd say I always sang and I was always musical from around the age of sort of six or seven really starting off with just sort of teaching things to myself by ear on piano and stuff like that um but uh it wasn't really recognized about my singing until I was sort of towards the end of secondary school so around 15 years of age um when I got the part of a narrator in the school's uh, musical theatre of Joseph uh-huh. um, so obviously a very big singing role and <laughs> um, which was my that was probably my first big thing other than singing in sort of choirs and doing sort of little rock band songwriting scenarios with my friends for fun uh, just you know outside of school um, but yeah it was never really uh, massively encouraged of me to do my singing from a younger age um, because I am actually hearing impaired so that was picked up on when I started school and I've had many many operations and my mum was just always told by doctors that oh no she won't be able to sing yeah no you know go and play an instrument instead kind of thing um but then obviously yeah once I got that part towards the end of secondary school um a big you know sort of thing for me because I'd I'd always personally loved singing and enjoyed it at school and things and that's when sort of my family really realized that oh actually she can sing (laughs) so yeah that was a a bit of an interesting journey just up to there for me so at some stage after being in your school play how did you then um get into the the next part of your journey for music 
Um, so I'd always studied music um, and I did like some grades on flute and saxophone and stuff. So I was always active in music. But then again, around that time where it was picked up on that I could sing, I did go for a few sort of auditions with local Amdram and stuff. So up to the age of about 18, I was involved in a lot of performances on my arts course in college, but also um, in public as well at places like the um, the Guildhall and the Charter Theatre back home in Preston. Um, so yeah, that's where I initially, I guess I was doing mostly a lot of musical theatre to start with, because um, I'd always done um, ballet and bits of acting as well. Excellent. That sounds, it sounds a similar journey to mine, actually. I, I, I grew up in a little village in Wiltshire and um, pretty much, pretty similar, you know, school plays. Mm. And then that led to local Amdram and then that led to drama school for me. Um, so you, you trained in Liverpool um, at the Liverpool Hope University. Is that right? Yeah, so I ended up moving to Liverpool after college for sort of a gap year. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I mean, I'd always sort of internally wanted to do um, rock stuff and I had always written, but I hadn't ever really put myself out there as a performer in that area yet. So while I was on a gap year, I was involved in quite a few um, youth projects in the Liverpool area. Um, There was one called Noise, um, which was uh, just run by some of the Merseyside artists arts associations and I got to do some recording and songwriting and stuff there and then I decided that I'd go to uni um, whilst trying to sort of continue with my songwriting and learning more about singing because um, I'd never officially done any kind of training other than school choirs at that point um, so yeah that was an interesting one. Fantastic well I know that you've taken you know lots of courses on, on your teaching journey so I know you know we that's basically how we've met on various courses haven't we so in terms of, um, you know, if you could go back and talk to your sort of, you know, 15 year old self before you went on stage to sing in Joseph, could you ever have envisaged that that your life would be like it is now using your voice as a professional, as a professional voice user, really as a teacher, because you are using your voice so much? Um, yeah. Do you think your life? No, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, yeah. So I just wondered if if, um, if you could tap your yourself on the shoulder what advice might you give yourself? Um, I guess probably the error that I always feel is that, well, it was largely because of the hearing thing. And then I felt my confidence was also knocked a little bit on my college course um, when I was doing arts and I started trying to put my singing out there a lot more. I got my confidence knocked quite a lot then. That's kind of just made me focus on music and performance from more of an academic approach, which is why I did more of an academic core subjects at uni in pop music and drama and theatre rather than focusing on the performance. Okay. So, I mean, I think the big thing really um, looking back is I wish I'd have done more when I was younger which is what I always try to um, encourage with younger singers I wish I'd have performed live as a solo singer earlier much more regularly um, because I still do have confidence issues with my own performance even now Um, I'm certainly you know the past five years really trying to develop that more but yeah I just think it's really important um, for performers to just take every opportunity and I feel that many of us really 
miss opportunities really or don't let ourselves take opportunities because we've already decided that we're not right for the job or that we're just not good enough and actually I try to get across to my singers now that actually it's none of your business and you know <laughs> it's about the audience at the end of the day and they will let you know very quickly whether they like you or not and of course we shouldn't aim to you know impress everyone you can't and you shouldn't because if you do then that means everyone's the same and we're a bit boring then aren't we absolutely I think one of the biggest things I, I use in my teaching is not to work on something to impress but to work on something to express um and, you know really make it about the um about the performance and less about trying to be something you know so um yeah light bulb moments let, let's see if I can pull a story out of you about any any particular memory that might flash back now if I were to think you know where have your light bulb moments been in your own vocal journey? Have you had an, you know, whether it's been on a, um, you know, in a lesson with someone that you're having or you're giving where you've, you've made a connection and thought, this is an important bit of information. I'm going to use this again and again and again. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously there's hundreds of things and <laughs> yeah. yeah, with regards to like my own CPD, I'm just a total, um, hashtag boys geek. Um, yeah. so I'm always just trying to be everywhere on everything, learning as much as I can. And that kind of happened because, um, about sort of five or six years ago, um, probably about the time I launched, um, my own singing school really after working, um, for another singing school previously, I, um, realized how little I actually knew and it kind of it really scared me I was like oh my gosh I've been teaching singing for like four or five years and actually I, there's so much that I don't know I mean obviously I was still helping people or I'm sure they wouldn't have come back to me but like compared to then just in the past five years my knowledge then and my knowledge now is just unbelievable and even though I know more than I've ever known I can see that there's still so much to learn um but for my own voice in general um really uh working with uh, Ron Morris probably about four or five years ago on accent method breathing I went down to the Aberystwyth Arts Center to where he does a course every couple of years for a few days um, and yeah for me as a belter and a rock vocalist primarily um, I'd never really done any proper training on you know the appropriate ways of breathing and especially for vocal efficiency and definitely vocal health um, because I've definitely had issues with fatigue um, early on in my teaching career over using my voice as a teacher but also when I then started trying to put myself out there doing some cover gigs and then eventually moving on to original material so um, yeah you know the breathing mechanics right back to the alignment are absolutely brutal and then learning that for myself and then implementing that so uh, brutally with my singers has just made a phenomenal difference it's one of the most important things um, but another thing a couple of years back and um, like you were saying a moment ago really focusing on the performance um, I think I did get a bit obsessed techie tech 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 um, you know probably three four years back learning all this new knowledge and just wanting to completely technically go in there and you know fiddle with everyone in a vocally appropriate way of course of course um, <laughs> but uh, yeah it really does make a difference and the amount of times that I've seen now that actually if the singer just commits to the text mm. some of the technical things we're trying to achieve are gone um it becomes authentic it becomes real and it's that universal use of the voice which you know is interpreted across any language because it's those emotive sounds and expressions rather than thinking oh larynx here tongue there you know all that business absolutely <laughs> yeah I'm, I mean very much so having having um 
you know, completed a still voice training where it is very much about breaking down the mechanics and understanding the different um, elements of, of uh, what we can control in the vocal tracts. Knowing that as a teacher is brilliant, but not, yeah. it's not something we necessarily trans, uh, translate to the student. We, it's, it's just being aware of small, small adjustments can make a big difference. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I mean, if, when we focus on, you know, expression and, and characterization and, and even with a pop song, I, I, when I work with pop songs with people, I say there's a story being told here. What, how is that being told? You know, so it's quite, it's quite, it's very essential, isn't it? It does fix a lot of things if they really, the student really understands that primal sound, what they're trying to communicate. Definitely. And I think it just almost happens as an autopilot, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like I always say, um, as, as an example to my singers, that if you're watching sort of like news reports from around the world and you've got people talking in uh, different languages, just by the way that they're using their voice, you can tell if they're talking about something excited, you can tell if they're sad, you can tell if they're terrified. And it's like accessing that expression of the text, obviously, mm-hmm. um, that then gives more light and dark and artistry and character to the song um especially in pop because you know we can become obsessed with i want to riff here i want to riff there i'm gonna belt this word here and it's like well that's all very nice that shows that you're a singer and i would listen and go well you're a good singer aren't you wonderful but actually is there a connection there Um, because if you don't feel something from the way that someone's using the voice obviously it doesn't really matter how you know fancy smancy you're being with your actual technique and your you know your little uh artistry bits it's got to make sense with the text and you know commit that to the audience kind of thing that's absolutely crucial well done that's brilliant I'm totally in agreement with you on all of these things so (laughs) so I think I mean you've mentioned accent method there and my next Mm. question is really to ask you what you found the most valuable in caring for your own voice do you think it would be about when you learned about breathing and accent or is there anything else that's that's more important or valuable to you um well, yeah, no, I think definitely thinking of ourselves as whole body singers, because even at the start of my teaching career, fresh out of uni, where, you know, I was only really working with beginners and mostly young people then just, you know, developing musicianship and pitch and rhythm and things like that. Um, but it is, yeah, it's interesting that when you step outside the box, that we've got to think of ourselves as using the whole body and not just that, oh, well, the sound's coming out of the neck and obviously some air's coming from the lungs kind of thing. It, is much more complex than that Um, and I think even appreciating um, sort of little quirks to people's character and you know uh, well-being and mental health um, have got you know huge implications as to how we use the voice or how we use our breathing Um, and even not just from an application to vocals point of view but with a lot of the accent method breathing stuff I find it can just really calm down some of my more stressed out or anxious singers as well and then you know almost putting them at that more neutral setting to start their Mm. singing training or their rehearsal of that lesson and puts them naturally in a better setup anyway and they don't always need to be focused on the breath as much because they've kind of reset themselves so yeah you know really using the whole body is absolutely vital um, but also developing awareness of vocal health again this whole thinking of ourselves as athletes is so important if our energy levels aren't right if our sleep patterns are you know our diets aren't right 
that it, it really does have a massive impact on the voice and just you know getting up and having a sing a lot of the time singers really don't consider that and it can be something else having an impact on their inability to achieve something and they'll just blame it on themselves as not being good enough or you know my range isn't there for that song or whatever but actually it's usually the external things that just need maneuvering to you know free up the whole body to be able to achieve those things Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't be in more agreement. We've, we're going to be interviewing various people on this podcast and some of which are um, touring singers that I work with who have got to fly. And obviously not now at the moment with this pandemic, everything stopped. But <laughs> some of the some of the people that I will be speaking to from from their point of view, this question might be quite different because they've got to contend with long flights, air conditioned hotel rooms, you know, and all of those things having an impact on on their vocal health and what they do to counteract that. So it's very interesting. Here's a question yeah. for you, Carrie. What does your voice mean to you? Ooh. Yeah, no. Um, I reckon at, at my point of life now, I feel like if you'd have asked me this question three to five years ago, it probably would have been a lot harder. Um, but yeah, I think now, I think with me always judging myself um, because of having my hearing impairments and, you know, having all the changes that have happened with my hearing. I mean, my hearing at present is better than it's ever been. Um, I'm still on one hearing aid with the potential of future operations. Um, but I have been on two hearing aids um, at different points in my life, then back to one and things. So I've always just found a lot of insecurities, um, you know, sort of with my own voice and not trusting myself not trusting what I can hear um, and things like that. So I think I kind of used to err in a way of always trying to please other people and always trying to make the sounds that I thought other people wanted me to make, even though then when listening back, I really just didn't really like my voice. I didn't like the way that it was being shaped. I didn't really feel like it was me. Um, whereas definitely the past sort of um, sort of definitely three years now, I feel quite comfortable in who I am. I think I've had a couple of wobbles over that three years where I feel a bit like, oh, I'm, like I, I feel it's worse as well being a teacher because I feel so afraid to put anything out there because I just feel like people are going to judge me as a teacher first, not an artist. And I really do class myself as someone who's more than an, of, of an artist if you get me yeah. so I like using the voice in a creative way especially with rock vocals and some people listening to it may question that oh is that bit technically secure oh is that bit efficient or whatnot yeah. but I know in myself from my own vocal health that I've never been singing as healthy and safe as I have been the past couple of years and I don't get any fatigue anymore or voice loss um you know not without you know illness on the side yeah. and things like that um, I don't feel exhausted after gigs or rock band rehearsals, which are very loud and can be very fatiguing. So, yeah, I mean, at the minute, I feel like I can listen to my voice back. And although I still critique what other singing teachers may hear in my voice if they listen to me, I'm kind of just like, I don't really care anymore. I like how it feels to sing that way. It works for my genre and the way that I want to interpret covers. And I'm just kind of going down this road of like, own it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of, I try to follow what I say to my singers, which is something that I've been being told for a few years, that why do I not just follow the same rules that I say to my singers, whereas <laughs> I make up a separate set of rules for myself and go, no, no, I must be better. I, I, you know, I must have another set of rules in some way to almost be a bit mean to myself. Whereas actually, who cares? You can't please everyone. As long yeah. as it's working for me, I like the sound. I like the feeling of it while I do it. That's all that matters, really. 
I don't know if that really answers the question. <laughs> no, it kind of it, it kind of does, and it kind of feeds back into the purpose of the podcast, which is to find vocal freedom and talk to my yeah. guests about what you know if they're attaining vocal freedom with their own voices. Because I'm speaking primarily to people in the voice industry. Um, we don't always practice anymore. I mean, I stopped um, performing live about three years ago and I still dip my toe in um, a little bit here and there. But mostly I'm, I'm a full time teacher now. So, um, yeah, just in terms of because, you know, if you don't, you're still out there performing. How regularly are you performing now? Do you, well, I know not now now, but before this. <laughs> well, yeah, I know that's really annoying. We had like two gigs coming up in the next six weeks and oh. they're like the first gigs we will have done since like back um, before Christmas in November. Um, it is really hard because I've like, uh, I've recently um, finished, uh, just finished my master's around Christmas um, and uh, going forth with sort of like PhD options now as well. So around the availability of sort of myself and the band's uh, members because we've all got full-time careers we kind of have dips and peaks mm. so like across the past sort of like five years we we've had you know a good sort of four or five months in each year where we've been gigging loads doing a few bits with BBC introducing getting radio airplay and stuff but then we're all too busy to do anything and then you kind of drop off radar and then it's trying to build it up again so we were actually um, since January just been really pushing to get going again um, and then all this has happened <laughs> oh, I know. It's, it's, it's put a bit of a dent in everybody's um, uh, plans for 2020, hasn't it? It it's, has, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, no, we're going to keep at it. I think we're hoping to in coming weeks maybe try and collaborate with some stuff online. Or, and my partner is the guitarist, so we live together, so we've got no excuse to not continue doing things, really. You can do it um, live. But yeah, we're a little alternative grunge rock band um, called Figures, um, and it's, yeah, me and three lads who are also my house band for Provox so we do uh we do you know do music things together a lot just quite often the students end up coming first over ourselves for our little showcases and things but we you know we enjoy it and we're very active and still writing and stuff so it's just trying to do whatever we can whenever we can really we've got loads of live stuff on our Facebook page and our Instagram I'm more than happy I actually much prefer myself on 100% live raw recordings I think my problem most of the time is what producers do to me um in the studio like not physically of course yeah <laughs> uh, via the audio <laughs> but I just yeah I'm just like I'm not a fan of producers at the moment that's a battle that I also have as a, a singer because I just I'm like why do you have to do that to my voice there hmm? what's your problem yeah it's funny isn't wrong it? it just raw <laughs> yeah I know what you mean yeah because I was mostly a live performer either in on stage or in a band so um when it did come to my band doing a demo many years ago um it felt flat to me musically. You know what I mean? It just didn't have that live feel because it was all a bit too clean and a bit too, like yeah. it, it seemed to lack and a bit of personality. Genre, it's supposed to be a bit rough and rugged, you know? Yeah. I don't want like a shiny vocal over the top. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, I know what you mean. So tell me what voices inspire you. What, what's been your, your influences to find your rock sound and who do you love? Well, um, as a little girl, um, my mum's always been sort of like a biker hippie chick. So um, from a very young age, I was exposed to like a lot of reggae and stuff like Bob Marley. But then I was listening to like Hendrix and stuff when I was like six and seven and U2, The Police, R.E.M., uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. So wow. that was big inspiration from a young age. Um, I often say that um, the person who taught me to sing because I didn't have training until I was sort of in my early 20s, 
20s um, is Shania Twain. Because um, when I was in year six, I obsessively sung along with the uh, Come On Over tape. That's right. I had it on tape. Oh, wow. <laughs> and yeah, when, uh, yeah, for years that went on. And when like no one was in the house, I would always sing um, very well. Yeah, I just wouldn't sing when anyone else was in the house. It was either at school or if, you know, my mom popped out to the shops or something, um, I would have a little sing. Um, but yeah, so when I was a little girl, definitely, I really loved like Shania Twain. And I remember I wanted to go in Stars and the Rise Kids as Leanne Rhymes. Oh, wow. Uh, when I was 11. Well, I did ask my mom, but um, she was like, all right, then we'll sing for us. And I was just like, no. Oh, uh, so then, it, you know, obviously <laughs> at that time she was, uh, you know, not aware that I was a singer at all because of what she'd been told by ENT doctors. So yeah. she's like, go and play your flute. <laughs> so Aww. it's all good. Um, but yeah, then moving on now, like my biggest passions, um, well, my main uh, two influences are Chris Cornell um, and Kelly Jones. Um, uh. I have to say, I really do prefer male vocalists to females that's just my preference isn't it funny? and I've always been trying to sound like a man vocally wow not fully achieved it yet not sure <laughs> I can without uh, official procedures but you know working with those darker timbres and those yeah. more rough rugged uh, rock sounds so yeah definitely those two in recent years but then as a couple of female vocalists from my mid-teens um, I really was a big fan not so much of her music but really of her voice um, which is Christina Aguilera who I kind of am a bit sad she gets such negative press really I do feel people are quite harsh on her um, I think she's got a phenomenal voice and I think Think she'd sound fantastic front in a rock band as well another um female singer um not very well known i don't think to most a lady called grace potter who uh she's gone back solo again now but she was with the nocturnals for a while i mean so most of the singers i'm inspired by i guess really it's always been like american country singers Isn't <laughs> because it funny? even kelly jones of stereophonics he is massively inspired by all the old country singers back over in the states and he always makes jokes about how you know he wasn't supposed to be like in a sort of pop rock chart band and he should have just been a country star um, so yeah for me all of those are very bluesy very rock and rolly kind of country inspired singers which is kind of the vibe that I've always felt comfortable going to just on autopilot really that's amazing I think also what all of those people you've mentioned have in common especially with the country uh, music genre is that, that there's a story being told through the song, isn't there? It's actually, it's kind of easier to act the song and tap into the emotion, perhaps as it, like, say, if you were singing on a dance track or something and it's just something repeating. Um, oh, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't not cope with that. No, no, no. Did you, did you, um, <laughs> did you get to see Chris Cornell live? I did. Me I too. saw him once in Soundgarden and twice on his song, well, his songbook um, and the previous one, Solo Tours. So, yeah, I, I did see him that a few months before it happened. Yeah. And actually, um, I was absolutely devastated uh, yeah. by the death of Chris Cornell. I genuinely didn't think it would affect me um, in that way because I've always never really understood why people get upset, you know, about celebrity deaths. Like I was quite upset about Robin Williams passing a few years back yeah but not in the same way like I was I was shocked in myself at my own response to the loss of Chris Cornell um because he was just you know he was 
so mentally stable than he'd been for years. He was sounding better than he had ever sang. If you listen to those last couple of solo albums, he just had the best voice um, ever. You know, at that point, he was doing so well. And, you know, what, 54 years of age around that time as well. So, yeah, it was really gobsmacking um, to lose him when it seemed like he had so many plans to still make so much music and... Yeah, it's really, really, really sad loss. Yeah, definitely agree with you there. I got to see him at Download. I think it was 2012, um, and I saw him at um, saw him with Soundgarden as well. I wasn't a massive Soundgarden fan actually. I'm, I I just really didn't know their music very well. I knew a couple of the songs that I'd heard over the years, um, but I did think his performances more so when he did his solo set. When I saw him on a different occasion, actually, I think he may have been solo 2009, and then with mm. Soundgarden 2012, they. They were playing and I was in my, uh, you know, my camper chair at Donington, um, <laughs> kind of half asleep, if I'm honest, because I was, we drank rather heavily the night before and it was, the, I'm sure they were in the Sunday afternoon set and I did yeah. fall asleep. <laughs> Which is in my, I was awful, middle of the afternoon, fell asleep, needed a nap. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, and uh, Kelly Jones, I mean, what I do love about both these male vocalists that you've mentioned, uh, Carrie, is that they're, they're melodic. You know, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, this is some some male vocalists for females to cover. You think, oh, God, there's nothing to do here. This is just kind of, <laughs> you know, there's only a, there's only about, about an octave of sound and I'm not really going to show any of my range off. But these guys really do have range, don't they? Oh, definitely. And so much just character and expression to the voice. Yeah. I mean, obviously, with Kelly as well, mm. um, just listening to his spoken voice, he's got a very uh, kind of like <laughs> Welsh voice. Yeah. Um, really tight. Like that Rod you know, Gilbert. He kind of has that. And everything. Yeah. But actually, when you hear him speak, he looks and sounds very healthy. It's, it's just, um, I don't know what it is. I think some people say it's back to the old uh, coal mine workers. And because they sounded like that, wow. that some generations of youngsters picked it up. I don't know if that's just a or not but it was something that I heard I suppose it would kind of make sense it would kind of make Apparently sense northern is allowed because we had to shout over the machinery in the uh, warehouses the cotton oh. factories and that. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if any of these things are real or just random <laughs> it would make sense I mean yeah I mean certainly I mean I I, I think my, my I always found belting really easy because I grew up in the countryside and you know if you wanted to call for your friend who lived on the other side of the playing field you would literally just call her so you know it was like learning to belt without any lessons at the age of like nine <laughs> Yeah, no, that's me. That's like with the hearing impairment. People are like, Carrie, you're so loud. I'm just like, well, I don't know. You need to tell me. Like, yes. Just be like, Carrie, turn down now. Right, got it. Because <laughs> half the time I can't tell how loud I'm being, which was also a problem with uh, being a bit fatigued. Yes, that makes sense. Voice. Yeah, if you, you may have been working a bit hard in your speaking voice, of course. Definitely. So I'm so pleased that everything's in a really good condition for you at the moment with your hearing. That's That's really great. I wonder if you'd be able to just give us a very... Um, bite size a little bit of information about your your ear research so it's not too um too sciencey for our non-sciencey listeners do you know what I mean yes let's uh <laughs> shall we shall we try in layman's terms yes please I think is the way isn't it yeah <laughs> um so yeah um basically since uh I I, I like sort of uh, got back onto the performing scene um, and I've had quite a stable rock band. Um, that, so that will have been sort of like four to five years ago. Um, I, I guess alongside doing like eight, nine, 10 hour teaching days and, you know, maybe a few gigs a month, I did start to fatigue and stuff. Um, but I also felt that I wasn't hearing myself as much and wasn't being able to sort of um, self-assess my own projection and effort levels during performance. Along with that as well, I am just ridiculous 
obviously tense and like freaking out at most of the time whenever I'm on stage even if people say they can't tell it's like I'm literally feel like I'm just you know a, a big wobbly jelly ball freaking out and just trying to keep it together so that definitely ha- didn't help me you know with fatigue and pushing at that time um but yeah I was really interested in sort of hearing tuning bits back on um recordings and where I might go slightly flat or things like that on some of my belt against the band in different atmospheric um situations where normally I wouldn't in rehearsal where I'm in more of a familiar space yeah so it got me to thinking about how my hearing aid might have affected me I started getting really confused I was like uh, do I wear no hearing aids and at the start of the band I was still on two hearing aids but I'm back down to one now and then it was like should I be wearing earplugs should I not be wearing earplugs um because it just with in line with my own hearing loss I felt that when I was plugging up I couldn't really hear the high harmonics on the guitar so that was making me whether or not I was actually going out of tune or not it was making me doubt my own pitch live in the moment which um you know a lot of the time I actually wasn't when listening back to recordings but you can't go forward like that yeah um and yeah it just really as part uh, around that time I was doing my MA as well got me thinking about well actually how many singers do we know that get bad press like even you know more recently with Adele at the Grammys and singing out of tune and taking her earpieces out and putting it all down to that um I just started getting really interested in about why we don't consider that more um and then thinking about it with my singers people who I know who are gigging a lot even just doing pub gigs and stuff not wearing ear protection and then we're putting our hearing at risk Mm. but actually people say because they can't tell how loud they're being it sounds like they're underwater inside their own head all these different things um they can't tell if they're singing out of tune or not um all those little things are quite common with why not just singers but musicians as well don't Mm. you know wear earplugs so essentially I got down a road of exploring that in more detail because we've had research done on uh, plugging the ears for the spoken voice and there's a lot of proof that um, it does actually affect articulation, perception of loudness and effort levels um, and also um, affects the first and second formant quite drastically which internally you won't really be able to tell but on spectrograph analysis they were able to um, figure that out by basically in sort of simpler terms looking at the waveform and seeing whether um you know it changes when you're wearing earplugs so I've been exploring that on different parts of the range and belt voice um uh, which I'm now hoping to take to a PhD study um but my initial pilot studies have shown some interesting things where some people felt that they weren't uh being as loud as normal with earplugs in when actually the evidence showed that they were actually putting in more effort which would imply that they could then potentially fatigue themselves and it also went the other way as well where some people weren't putting in as much effort because they were downplaying the perception of the loudness internally because they felt they were being much louder than normal because of how the earplug effect happens inside so they then weren't going for it as much as they were particularly on things like belt Mm. and then they were going a bit off on the pitch Um, but uh, it's a sort of a very long road of uh, sort of exploration at the minute and it's going to be checking different voice qualities, different pitch levels, different vowels. I actually only assessed uh, two vowels across all of my experiments as well. Um, but there were some interesting uh, discoveries with the darker vowels. Um, so things like ooh 
um, where actually pitch perception and perception of loudness were more dramatically changeable under the condition of wearing earplugs. So, um, yeah, nothing stern at the minute, but my sort of hypothesis at the minute is that some singers are, um, you know, dramatically uh, varying the way that they use their voice when they're using things like earplugs and in-ear monitors. So I just felt that if there's a way that we can prove any, um, I guess, like... uh, like you know patterns um, yeah. if there's several singers all experiencing the same thing from earplugs how can we then as teachers assist our students with more rehearsal with earplugs and in-ears mm. to prep, prep them for a gig um, but also to consider um, which parts of voice quality and range are actually being afflicted and are there ways in the teaching studio that we can help the singer override it almost yeah definitely that's really interesting research Carrie fantastic I think that um, for me personally as well, I found um, when I was performing with my band, I had a really good foldback monitor in front of me and mm-hmm. we all had our own monitoring system. I did try in-ears for a little while and I couldn't get on with them because I felt cut off from my audience. It's it, strange, It's really it? strange for me. So there were, I, I depped a couple of gigs um, for this wedding band and they they were like, well, we don't have any on-floor monitors, so you're going to have to use in-ears. I'm like, okay. So they um, they set me up with some in-ears and we got the balance and I could hear the guitar. Mostly I'm tuning off the guitar at this point because there was a couple of guitars and a drummer and uh, they didn't have keys in that band. So I've, I've got everything I need to sing and it's fine and I can hear myself and I think, oh, this is okay. I don't need to work very hard. I can, I can you know, put on performance, but I've got a really good level. But what I found is with this big packed dance floor of people getting into it, and they were coming over and sort of, you know, they want to beckon you over and say, oh, can you can you do Summer of 69 or whatever, you know, whatever it is they want to talk to the singer, yeah. don't they? And I, I was actually in a group where I was singing with another man as well. So it was two two people fronting this group. And um, and I thought, I'm going to need to take this out to hear them, first of all, because I can't hear them very well. Um, <laughs> and then when I took one out to listen to this person, I could then, I was back in the room. So I actually mm-hmm. found performing with one in-ear to help me with tuning and then another one to help me feel like I'm in the space I'm in gave mm-hmm. me a really good control that night. And I was like, Oh, I'm happy here. This is nice. Yeah. And you know, that is something that I came across in my research, even with like hearing aid users yeah. um, who ideally do need to hearing aids. Um, there has been a lot of research saying that a lot of them feel more comfortable um, just having one in. And mm. obviously we get the whole effect, you know, when people are unsure about their pitching where you get the old Mariah Carey images <laughs> yeah. where Stick she's got your a finger, finger in, in your ear, ear riffing up and down and all that. Um, I mean, but clearly there is some truth in that. Mm. So although it's not something that's massively explored at the minute on on the singing voice I mean I think the fact that um hearing loss is on the up as well it's been proven um and they're saying that it's going to be affecting one in three people in sort of the next uh, 10 to 15 years that everyone will have some form of hearing loss and normally you know this wouldn't happen until people get much later on in life and mm. um, but again with the exposure with youngsters having the um you know headphones in all the time yeah um, you know constantly listening to music or whatever it is they're doing on the phones and iPads and you know how many times do people go past that this is your recommended volume limit sometimes to break out the obviously the background noise if you're on public transport and stuff 
but actually we're harming our ears and that means that that is going to be really detrimental to musicians and singers in general especially if they're wanting a career as musicians and you know we're hearing even in orchestras and where people's hearing is being damaged even though they're being offered protection and it's about how do we get the right balance between the ear protection or the feeder of sound and the live performance whilst not I guess, inhibiting the performer from doing their job. Um, and it is easier said than done. Um, the amount of singers I work with who think, oh, I'll just whack my earplugs in as I walk onto the stage at the moment. And it's like, I'm like, no, you need to be rehearsing in the same conditions. Obviously, it's going to throw you. Yes. And then obviously, it can really knock your confidence then if you get up and go dodgy on a bit of the song or get really put off in the moment. It really can severely affect your anxieties in performance going forward from that. I mean, I'm, I've got classes coming up that I'm signing for, for September onwards. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I am, I'm, I'm doing a little bit about listening, about helping t- people to learn how to listen better. Generally, you know, yeah. <laughs> different types of listeners that we get. Listeners that don't really listen as well. Listeners that are quite distracted. <laughs> There's a few of them. <laughs> I know a few of them. They look like they're listening. They might be nodding. Um, but then, but when, then the following night will you say, well, did you? They'll be like, what were you on about? You know, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there's a few of those in my house. <laughs> so people, you, it's, they say selective hearing, don't they? You can have selective hearing where oh, someone's yeah. talking to you. I definitely know a few people with that. Exactly. <laughs> so there's selective hearing and there's learning to be a good listener and there's listening to yourself and there's mm-hmm. listening to others. But then you're right. The way that we use our, our ears as part of, you know, part of our setup when we're singing on stage it makes complete sense that you would rehearse in the same conditions. We should really. I mean, if you think if you're doing a musical theatre show, you learn all your separate bits, you pop them together. So then you're singing, dancing, doing a backflip in your really heavy dress and your stilettos <laughs> and having to put it all together. And you can't just do that the first time on opening night, can you? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, anything could happen. Um, you know, it's going to be unpolished. It's going to be messy. Things can go wrong. So I think there is an importance. I mean, and even me, myself, it's only sort of the past 18 months to two years of gradually gaining more and more knowledge on this and then doing some of my pilot studies that I realized that I am working with people who are being afflicted Um, and I know there are some people who have sort of questioned my line of research as well and gone oh well you can just go and get specialist this and specialist that made and it's like well all right if you're at the absolute pro level making a mint Mm. but what about people who are trying to work their way up what about you know I've got people who are pub singers and event singers they can't necessarily afford to go out and spend a thousand pound on some custom designed special you know fancy schmancy you know technology so it's like what you know there's got to be other ways around it and also how do we encourage people to protect their hearing and take it seriously um because you know once it's gone you can't you can't get it you can't get it back yeah absolutely I mean I know my husband who was our sound engineer in our band for a good decade um he he did start wearing earplugs towards the end of of our sort of journey as as pretty much a function band that went for about 10 years and um, because he he did go and have a hearing test and he he'd already suffered some hearing loss, mm. um, at this point he would have been in his sort of early forties, and um, I was like really quite surprised. But I think the the difference being when he was um, doing engineering, he was on the other side of the PA, 
Um, whereas I'm on my side and I've, you know, everyone sort of behind the front of house speakers, if you like, mm. has got our sort of balanced sound and it sounds a, a little, quite a lot quieter back there. And he's on the other side of the PA with a PA speaker often very near his head, you know, and he's he's loving it. He's jamming out. He's fine. But um, yeah, over over a few quite a few years of doing this, it did affect his hearing and he has had some hearing loss. Um, yeah, and I have heard that from sound engineers as well, um, yeah. because they don't feel that they can be uh, putting earplugs in and blocking the ear canal, because um, what we know immediately is that it definitely causes high frequency um, hearing loss. So yeah. you're immediately, as soon as you block your ears, you're losing those high tones. And that's why a lot of people will end up naturally going a bit flat, mm. because the sound is darker to us internally. Yeah. Um, so we try to pitch match to that. Um, and then it's like with myself, with my own band, um, because I am um, wearing uh, some filter um, monitor earplugs these days, which filter out the most harmful sounds. Um, but I am finding that I've just had to learn to pitch to my bass player um, and, you know, trust that he is completely in tune with the guitarist because it's far too confusing in the live moment, even after lots of rehearsal. Because the other thing is, you know, what we don't think about if you are working with a live band as well is from your rehearsal room, which will be quite soundproofed and boosted and things and then you can go to a variety of performance spaces but then they are all massively affected by how many humans actually enter the performance space to watch a gig Absolutely. and you know on my music scene you know it's, it's pretty quiet most of the time it's really hard to get people out to original live gigs anymore these days yeah um you know it's a strange one so there's I think there's just so much more from the hearing point of view because I do think that there'll be some singers out there who are overworking their voice and potentially causing vocal health problems just because of actually the hearing perception not because of their singing technique or ability you know there's got to be a crossover um, and my stuff all comes back to um, Tomatus um, theories Alfred Tomatus which was back in the 50s where he explicitly um, has found from a voice user's point of view um, that the human well basically the voice cannot make a sound that the human ear cannot hear or interpret um so it is it is clearly all relative but yeah. um, there's just not enough research in it for the singing voice <laughs> no it's wonderful it's really good because ultimately when you can hear yourself and you can hear and trust the sounds that you're going to make you are you are much more in a in a setup position to use your voice with vocal freedom which i think is the big thing of what this is about as well um, so yeah, hearing's really important, and, and certainly I found moving on to using my earphones carefully. And again, like you say, I'm not I'm being careful not to have the volume too high in my ears right now. Uh, but it. being you know mm -hmm. being being able to sit close to my microphone, hear my voice very clearly, I can feel I'm not overworking. Yeah, because I guess what it's also doing, so while you've got your headphones on right now while we're connected on this, mm. um, obviously you might have a bit of a boomier sound or you might get some people, well, I'm not allowed underwater, so I always question this one because I've never been allowed water in my ears, so I can't swim. But people often say that the earplug effect is like being underwater, um, but I don't really know what that's like. <laughs> but I don't know if that's what you'd feel. I mean, can you tell a difference? Like, can you hear that you're more projected to yourself internally? Because obviously that would stop you potentially from working as hard which is what a lot of people described in the feedback from my pilot studies it wasn't always perceptively correct but they felt that yeah. they weren't trying to exert as much projection or energy I'm definitely not trying to exert because I can I feel like my audience or the ear is only what was this distance six inches from my mouth yeah and I think when I'm using just my screen that's a good two feet away from me 
So it's like yes. I'm trying to speak to the ear of someone two feet away from me. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's almost like no, the further away the source is, the more you feel you need to work your voice to be heard. But of course, I've got really good. Into, I need to remind myself sometimes and just sit back and go, no, you know, I don't need to work so hard. <laughs> it's not conscious. It, but imagine in that live performance yeah. moment on stage, it's even harder to focus on things like that, isn't it? Because you've got everything else going on. Do the audience like me? Oh, what's the guitarist doing? He's playing an extra riff. Is the drummer awake? You yeah. know, all these kind of things. What's the first word of the next line? Yeah. You know, we can't be doing all these different things. I mean, and singers really do work hard. The amount of things we have to focus on and rehearse on for, for it to become our autopilot, I really think is not appreciated by the general members of the <laughs> they just think we wake up and can either sing fabulously or not they've got no idea how much hard work goes in. <laughs> absolutely yeah I mean I, and I can also speak for from as someone who has been on stage in the middle of a gig and my fallback monitor's broken like literally lost power and I've had to um rely on my kinesthetic feeling of where the sound is I can probably uh, I've done, had this and I could feel a little bit of the fallback from the PA going out hitting the room and coming back so it's not like I can't hear myself at all mm. but um I have had a few gigs over the years where I lost my um lost my my uh, on you know my fold back monitor on the floor um and do you feel that made you sing with more effort that's what I find as well when I, people say that they can't hear themselves it's like we somehow think try and sing a bit louder or a bit more forcefully and somehow I'll hear myself better and um, it does seem to be natural instincts for a lot of people I, I I agree that that would be something that most people would do but I think as a voice specialist it's something I deliberately knew not to do do you know what I mean so it's like I already <laughs> knew enough to know that I'm not going to try and out sing the band who are all electronically yeah. pumping through these speakers I'm not going to try and project you know as if I haven't got a microphone that would be foolish so I was lucky yeah. enough to, you know, I was already um, teaching and, and knew a lot about voice care and stuff that I knew I couldn't do that. So I had to find another way. And I did, I think I did stick my finger in my ear a few times just to sort of like tune me in. But um, but you're right. I mean, I, I remember a story years ago, Adele was on something like the Graham Norton show, I think. And she was talking about when she lost her voice in France and she'd had this um, very little sound check. The, the sound engineer was on the other side of the of the arena that she was singing in and her floor monitor or what her, I, mean, I can't remember which was something wasn't working like it should. And yeah. so she thought, well, sod you. And she just oversang and oversang and oversang. And then she blew her voice out the next day. She had no voice. So I thought, oh. well, that's something, you know, unfortunately, at that she was very young. I think she was only in her early 20s when this happened. Obviously, yeah. she then went on to learn about um, how to take care of her voice and how that was not a good decision. Because I think she was saying as she got angrier, she sang louder. She was furious. Well, I think you know? that's it. <laughs> and, you know, I think I've had the same response from some singers that they feel yeah. like, oh, for goodness sake, the sound engineers messed it up or somebody hasn't set this up properly. And it's almost like a response in the moment. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. We have to focus on um, kinesthetic. And that's something that's become a big focus to me to stop trying to listen, stop trying to self-analyze, just mm trust the effort level the feeling that I'm used to of repetition from band rehearsals don't try not to listen to it I guess um yeah. you know it's trying to not listen because what I'm hearing is not what anyone else is hearing so what's the point it's it's kind of like it's that it's getting that balance between having the awareness of what sounds we can cope with and work through yeah and then I guess defeating the changes to the sound that would put us off in different environments and scenarios and atmospheres um you know it's clearly you know to do with repetition like most things for humans and yeah. muscle memory and you know just adjustments and 
trusting ourselves. But at the same time, you could have a really important, you know, performance opportunity when something like this happens to you. And we, you know, we need to be able to see if there's ways that we can work around it, especially as technology is constantly developing. Who's to say that we haven't already got the technology to create better in in ears, better, um, you know, resources of uh, earplugs? Because there's been a lot of experiments on them since um, the 80s and even how the hearing aid has developed is phenomenal. So it just makes me wonder whether, you know, putting the health side together with the musicians and the technology, maybe one day we can design something um, that is individualized but affordable and really going to, you know, save performers and hearing health at the same time. Make that happen, Carrie. I just, I think I've come across as the person who just moans about ears now. People's (laughs) like, oh, it's the ears, girl. (laughs) It's so important. It's such good work that you're doing and, you know, really vital, I think, in the industry that musicians are made more aware, especially singers are made more aware that it can make such a difference. Um, And I think it's great as well that when, you know, with your, you're doing this with your students, you're giving them live band experience. You're giving them the experience of what it's like to play with noisy musicians in a smaller Mm -hmm. space, you know. And that, that in itself can be quite shocking the first time you do it, can't it? If you're a young person. Oh my gosh, yeah, it always is. Yeah. Um, oh, they're so loud. And they only get like a one little 10 minute band uh, rehearsal as well. And for some of them, yeah, if they're a new student and not done the show before, but even if they have, we can only budget doing that one once a year um, with our house band. Yeah. Um, but it's an amazing experience for them. But yeah, do you know what? Some people do have, um, you know, slightly negative experiences, um, but actually we're able to work with that in positive ways and move forward if it's some people who haven't come to their band rehearsal because of you know commitments or whatever well you can't do that if you're a signed musician you know or doing session work you've got to be there Um, and you know taking the opportunity to be rehearsing with earplugs in and getting used to them and because it is weird and you don't notice necessarily how much you're changing your voice because of how the sound is different to you because you're trying to find something familiar. So you will manipulate the timbres and the positions and the spaces and even the articulation sometimes because you're trying to listen for what the sound normally sounds like. But obviously by then editing that internally, that's going to give you something very different on the outside. So it's very interesting. It really is. Okay, so I'm going back to, to voice, but I've loved talking about ears and I am thank you so much because it's it's something that we, I'm not going to speak to anyone else about that probably. You know, we're talking about more about voice stuff. So If I'm, you I'm, do, let me know. I yeah, I will do. If I, ca- if I come across some more <laughs> ear, ear people, I will definitely put you in touch with each other. Um, so I, I got a bit about the, the voices that have inspired you over your career with, with voice. Um, mm-hmm. Who would you never tire of? Who do you think's just got that voice that can tell the story and really keep you in, involved? I think it was definitely still be my top two chaps, yeah. um, Chris Cornell and Kelly Jones. Actually, admittably, um, in recent months, I've pretty much just been listening to like Kelly Jones on a loop. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, obviously, Chris Cornell as well. But um, I did after his passing. I kind of I found it a lot harder to listen to him, which I really hate. Yeah. Um, but I just yeah, it, I kind of feel a bit sad, but also a bit angry. Like why? didn't someone notice something and try to you know help him before we lost him yeah and kind of thing um but yeah no definitely um absolutely those two and yeah you know Kelly Jones he's just got I mean I think again he's massively underrated as a singer he really has got such flexibility and such character to his voice and you know he's he's a great storyteller as well so um yeah you know definitely out of those two just the the stories the songs themselves the music but just the way they use their voices to express is just really powerful I think I can just literally listen
listen to on loop forever. <laughs> That's awesome. So for our listeners that may not have heard a song by Chris Cornell or Kelly Jones Stereophonics, what would be your um, your song to go check them out? What do you think shows off their vocal freedom the best? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, do you know what? Yeah, something a bit different for Chris Cornell because a lot of people who um, who know him will probably primarily know him from Soundgarden and Audio Slave, um, the supergroup that he made with the Rage Against the Machine musicians. Um, but he did um, a song on the soundtrack of 12 Years a Slave, that movie from quite recently. And there's a really uh, nice song called Misery Chain. Um, which Chris wrote about the film um, and it's, it's very much bluesy um, but uh, just in terms of the way um, even the chord progression is and the melody and the way he uses his voice I think that's a really beautiful one to listen to definitely. And what about Kelly Jones? Oh see it's such a hard one with Kelly because um, yeah he's he's got a, a lot of character and expression oh my gosh I'm trying to think. Do you know what? He's got quite an interesting one um, from a songwriting point of view as well. Um, and the vocal's really nice and genuine on it. Uh, I think it's off the second album, the second Stereophonics album. It's called I Stopped to Fill My Car Up. Oh, interesting song um, name. And definitely, yeah, listening to the lyrics from start to finish. It's, uh, it's well, it's an interesting little sort of story and play on the story that he does with it lyrically and from a songwriting point of view which is really nice and it's just very simple piano and vocal um compared to the usual full rock band setup that sounds awesome I'm going to definitely put that in the show notes as well so everyone can hear it so just Mm. as we wrap up is there anything particularly you'd like to promote or I can put you I'll also put um Carrie's social media links inside the um the notes for the podcast but anything particular? I know it's difficult, this bit. Anything coming up that's <laughs> exciting? Well, no, not at the moment because of coronavirus, but, you know. Well, that's it. Yeah, you know, I'm always looking to link with uh, new singing teachers, especially um, anyone based up north, um, which also does include Scotland and uh, Ireland, uh, well, Northern Ireland, yes. <laughs> um, as part of the north area of AOTOS. Yes. Um, obviously, we just recently had to cancel quite a few events, obviously, in the present times, um, but we're hoping to get a lot of stuff going on, certainly from sort of around you know autumn onwards yeah so you know do reach out and get in touch thank you for joining me on the vocal freedom podcast i hope you've enjoyed the episode and we'll move into your day with a bit more vocal freedom feeling that you can express using your voice and let the world hear what you have to say visit colchestervoiceacademy.com forward slash podcast Sign up to be kept informed as new episodes are published and consider joining our online community. Membership to this will allow you to post questions to our guests, link you to show notes, social media links, and entitle you to exclusive offers from our guests. See you next time.